This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Sunday morning. I know it feels like an hour earlier this morning, but I hope you're ready to hear because I'm ready to preach and looking forward to it. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 as we continue our series through the gospel of Luke. We'll be in Luke chapter 1 this morning. I want you to know that my preaching over the next few weeks will be a little bit different than I normally preach. It is my normal habit uh, to take a text of scripture and just kind of unfold that text for you. I think Uh, that is probably the most helpful way to preach week in and week out. Uh, But there are times in which, because trying to accomplish different things, there are different ways to preach. And so, because we're trying to understand in the first three chapters of Luke, who is Jesus and wanting to know him, uh, I'm going to be preaching a little bit more systematic, which means I'm going to be taking a lot of different passages and revealing those to us. My preaching is also going to be a little bit more doctrinal in the next few weeks, so a little bit heavier and thicker, but I think you'll come to understand, at least this is my prayer, as we come to the conclusion of this service in the next few weeks, that what you will see is that these weighty doctrinal truths matter for us every day, that these are not for somebody else, they're for us, and as we come to understand them correctly, we'll see the way in which they're changing us and even changing the way in which we live And that's how we started this morning, talking about the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is in fact God. It is the starting place, really, in order for us to have a good understanding of Jesus and in order to know him well. I think we would all agree that since the moment in which Jesus was born, everyone has been trying to figure out exactly what to do with him. It's undeniable that he lived and that he died and that he had a great influence on the world in which we live, but yet there's still a lot of debate, and there always has been. King Herod, when he heard that Jesus was born and had heard that it was some kind of king, he was so intimidated by the coming of Jesus, he made a decree that every baby boy in Bethlehem would be killed just so he could do away with Jesus. Jesus' parents weren't exactly sure what to do with Jesus. It would be difficult, I would imagine, having a perfect child, particularly for your siblings. Uh, But we see many episodes in which his parents weren't exactly sure what to do. There's that little story in Luke 2, which we're going to see in a few weeks, where Jesus' family goes to the temple. They leave to go back home. Jesus stays. They're worried. They come back to find him. To which Jesus says, well, didn't you know I would be in my father's house about my father's business? And it tells us that Jesus' parents did not understand the things that he was saying. We're told that the religious leaders didn't know exactly what to do with Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus begins his public ministry by going back to his hometown synagogue. He takes the scroll, he reads from Isaiah, he makes a few comments. The religious leaders are so enraged by what he says, they drive him out of the city and try to throw him off a cliff, but he escapes. The crowds weren't exactly sure what to do with him. It tells us, In Luke chapter 8, really in the middle of Jesus' ministry, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They said, well, some a prophet and some say you're Elijah. 
says, well, who do you say that I am? In other words, the crowd is not even quite sure about who Jesus is. And then in the next chapter, in Luke 9, Jesus calms the seas, and his disciples look at each other and say, who is this man? That even the wind and the waves obey him. His disciples, still in the middle of his ministry, aren't quite sure what to make of Jesus Christ. And 2,000 years later, the situation is exactly the same. People are still trying to figure out what to do with Jesus. And in the midst of all of the questions that people have about Jesus, there is one question that matters more than any other. There is one question which, if answered wrong or answered right, determines everything else about Jesus Christ. The question is this, is Jesus, in fact, God? That there is no other question that matters more than that question because if he is God, he means everything. And if he's not God, he means absolutely nothing. We can't just take him like most religions do. We cannot view him as a good moral teacher. That's not an option. He's either God or he's a delusional cult leader like so many others who have claimed to be God and gathered a few followers. That well-known quote of C.S. Lewis in 1950, trying to help us to understand in his book, Mere Christianity, why it's not an option to take Jesus as a good moral teacher, listen to what he says. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Everything hinges on the divinity of Jesus Christ. And Luke absolutely understands how foundational this is. And that is why throughout the first three chapters over and over and over and over again, he's continuing to remind us of the reality of Jesus Christ, that this is in fact God in the flesh who has come to dwell among us. Now, Luke does this a bit differently, particularly differently than John does it. John just starts by saying it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There is nothing that has ever existed that did not exist from him. So in the first few verses, John just comes out with it. But Luke reveals it to us more of the way in which we often come to understand Jesus. We talk about something called progressive revelation. What that means is this, is that God does not reveal everything to you in one moment. You couldn't handle it. What he does is moment by moment, he gives you new revelation of him. So Lord willing, this morning you will receive from his word some fresh revelation. And then in the morning you'll wake up and you'll open your Bible and get some fresh revelation. That's why Paul prays that the believers in Ephesus would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. Because God just slowly, moment by moment, reveals himself to us. 
And that's really what Luke does. He reveals to us who Jesus is slowly, a little bit at a time. He's showing us step by step, really the way that we come to believe it. And Luke shows us the divinity of Jesus, not in order that we might simply have a mental understanding of it, but remember everything he writes, verses 1 through 4, is that we might have certainty, that we might be deeply rooted and grounded in our faith, not just mentally, but so that we might live in a way that we know how to trust and follow Jesus today. In midst of all of the winds that are blowing against us, that is the divinity of Jesus that actually helps us to be rooted and grounded and know how to follow Jesus today. Now Luke reveals this to us in two ways. He shows us the divinity of Jesus by comparison and by proclamation. He shows us Jesus compared to others and then Jesus proclaimed by others. So let's look at those two as we see them in Luke chapter 1. The first way in which Luke shows this to us is he shows us Jesus compared to others. Write that down, Jesus compared to others. Luke is the only gospel that gives us information about the birth of John the Baptist. We spent an entire sermon on this last week, so if you missed it, go back and listen to that one. We talked a little bit last week about why that matters so much for Luke, and the reason is because Luke wants us to understand that he's picking up the story exactly where it left off. That before the coming of Jesus, there was 400 years of silence in which God didn't speak. But the last promise in Malachi 4 that was given by God before the 400 years of silence was the promise of a prophet like Elijah who would come and prepare the way of the Lord. And Luke picks up the exact same words from Malachi 4 to show that John the Baptist is the promised prophet like Elijah who is coming. And the reason that's significant is because it means that God is on the move and the great hero of the Bible, Jesus Christ, is about to show up. The, the story continues in the birth of John the Baptist. That God has not forgotten his people, that he remembers his people. But there's another reason that Luke starts with the birth of John the Baptist. It's because he wants us to see the similarities between the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus Christ. No one else does this but Luke. So he gives us this long passage, you see starting in verse 5, where we'll have a title that says something like, The Birth of John the Baptist Foretold. And then starting in verse 26, it tells us about the birth of Jesus foretold. So he tells one story, and then tells the next story, and he puts them side by side because he's trying to make us understand how much these two stories have in common, and then help us to understand how different these two stories actually are. Now, think about this. We read the story of the birth of John the Baptist foretold last week. So let's look this week at the way in which the birth of Jesus is foretold, starting in verse 26. Listen to these words as I read. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom, there will be no end. 
Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, that's John's mother, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now listen, the reason that we know that Luke intended to do this is because between the story of the foretelling of the birth of John and the story of the foretelling of the birth of Jesus, there are 12 obvious parallels and 10 exact phrases. This is not a coincidence. We read one, we read the other, and we start to think these stories are almost exactly alike. Both of them begin with the introduction of both parents. Both of them are met by an angel. In both cases, the angel says that he is Gabriel who has been sent from God. In both of these stories, there's this massive obstacle to having a child. The first obstacle is that Zachariah and Elizabeth are old. The second obstacle, a little bit more of a significant obstacle, is that Mary is a virgin. Those are significant obstacles to having a child. Both of them respond the same way in which it says that uh, Zachariah was troubled and then it says Mary was troubled. In both situations, Gabriel says the same thing. He says, do not be afraid. He then says, you will bear a son and you will name him. And in both cases, he says, and he will be great. In both cases, Mary and Zechariah both object to this and wonder how this can be. And then both of them are given a sign by Gabriel so that they would know that it was God who sent him to give them this message. Both of these are miraculous births. Both of these are surprising events. This is why at the end of Gabriel saying to Mary that nothing is impossible with God because both of these situations are shocking, they're surprising, they're unusual. There are not other situations like these two situations. And Luke puts them right here because he wants us to read one, he wants us to read the other, and he wants us to stop and go, this is incredible. These stories are almost just alike. But then he wants us to take the time to notice that Although they have many similarities, these children are dramatically different. Yes, Gabriel came to both. Yes, both were supernatural. Yes, both were told what to name their child. Both were given the specific name. Both of them had Gabriel sent from God. There's so many similarities, but these children are extremely different. Think about some of these differences. John's conception is surprising, because the baby was conceived by an old man and woman. But Jesus' conception is miraculous because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit of God. John, it says, is the son of a high priest. Jesus is the son of God. John will be called great. Jesus will be called holy. John will be from the house of Jacob. Jesus will rule over the entire house of Jacob. John is a prophet of the Most High God. Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. John will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. John prepares the way for the Lord, but Jesus is the Lord. So what Luke is trying to get us to understand is this, that when you compare the announcements, when you compare the births, when you compare the situations, they're very similar, but when you compare the babies who were born, Jesus is superior to John in every single way. 
Luke wants us to come away from this going, John is an incredible prophet of God promised from the Old Testament, but Jesus is the hero of the story promised since Genesis chapter 3. He is the one in whom everything else revolves. He's trying to do exactly what is done for us in Hebrews 1. When the writer of Hebrews shows us that Jesus is superior to all of the angels. Why? Because only Jesus is called the Son of God. So when Jesus is compared to John, he's superior in every way. But when Jesus is compared to God, he's equal in every way. Gabriel the angel uses all of these phrases and terms to refer to Jesus, and all of them are references to God himself, showing us that he's superior than John, but equal to God. So by comparison, Luke wants us to see the superiority, the divinity of Jesus, that he is in fact God eternally existing in the flesh. But Luke not only wants us to see it by comparison, he wants us to see it by proclamation. This is the second part. Luke shows us that Jesus not only compared to others is God, but Jesus proclaimed by others is God. This is the overwhelming way in which Luke shows this to us in a way that could not be more clear. All throughout this text, there are references to Jesus as God. The first and most clear ones are from Gabriel in verses 32 and 33. Look again. He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. That's not simply a reference to Jesus' place uh, as the Son of God. It is a reference to a title of divinity used throughout the Old Testament that this, in fact, is the the second person of the Trinity, the Son of the Most High God. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And as of kingdom, there will be no end. Let me ask you a question. How can you have an everlasting kingdom unless you're an everlasting God? Has anyone else ever had an everlasting kingdom? Is there anyone else who will ever rule for all of eternity as a king? No, no one but God himself. You cannot be an everlasting king unless you are an everlasting God. He makes it very clear this is God in the flesh that is coming. He even says this in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This is a child without an earthly father conceived by the Holy Spirit of God, and therefore the child to be born will be called holy, here it is again, the Son of God. Now if that wasn't enough, Elizabeth says it as well. There's that great story where Mary goes and visits Elizabeth, and it says in verse 41, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, listen to this, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Elizabeth saying this to Mary, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 26 times in Luke 1 and 2, the word Lord is used. Every single time it is in reference to God alone. So Elizabeth is there, Mary walks in, she immediately declares Why am I so blessed to have the mother of my Lord? She knows that the baby inside of Mary is in fact God coming in the flesh, the very son of God. He is the Lord. Zechariah acknowledges it. Look at chapter 1, verses 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet, talking about John, of the most high. (laughs) 
for you will go and prepare before the Lord his ways. Even Zechariah understands that John comes and exists to prepare the way for the Lord. The angels acknowledge it in chapter 2, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Simeon, who was waiting in the temple for the coming of the Lord, acknowledged it. It says, and it had been in verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so he did when they brought Jesus in to be dedicated in the temple. John even acknowledges it. Chapter 3, verse 16. When John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Do you know that in the first century, if you had a servant or some kind of slave, it was not permissible for you to make them untie your sandals because that was too demeaning. Yet John comes and says, the one that is coming after me is so superior to me that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. That he was making it very clear that the one who is coming is far superior to me. John's saying, don't look at me. No, I've just come to turn your attention to the one who is coming. And if all of that wasn't enough, the most significant one is in chapter 3, verse 21. When it says, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying this. This is God the Father verbally speaking in an audible voice from heaven so that everyone could hear, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So after everyone else has declared it, God the Father opens up the heaven and says, this is my beloved son. This is a really important text for us for a lot of reasons. Not only because God the Father is declaring the divinity of Jesus Christ, saying that he has eternally existed with me and will eternally exist. It protects us from a heresy which seems to be getting a lot of attention these days, particularly in more charismatic movements called modalism. And I I want you to know about this because it is important. Some people will say that God just comes at different times in history in different modes. So in the Old Testament, we have God the Father. And then in the New Testament, that same God comes in God the flesh. And then after God the flesh goes up, he comes in God the Spirit. Denying that within the Trinity, there are three distinct persons in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons in one God. But you have in this text all three persons of the Godhead present. When Jesus is being baptized, the Holy Spirit is descending and God the Father is speaking. Making it very clear that we believe in God in three persons as we sing in the great hymn, Blessed Trinity. God the Father wants to make sure that it's very clear. And Luke wants to make sure it is very clear. What the rest of the New Testament continues to affirm that Jesus is God. Now, I would imagine that most of you walked in here believing that. But I'm not exactly sure we understand exactly why that matters to us. At the foundation of everything, I would say the reason it matters most is because of what we said a moment ago, that if Jesus is not God, listen to this, he simply does not matter at all. But if he is God, he means everything. 
If he's God, he matters more than anything else in all of existence. If he is God, not only does he mean everything, but he changes everything. And the simple fact that he is God changes everything for us. Everything hinges upon this. And I think the application of this and the response to this for us is best seen by the response of Mary and the response of Zechariah as they, by the message from Gabriel and the confirmation of the Holy Spirit, start to understand the significance of what's happening, that, that God in the flesh is coming, and they both respond in really a similar way. They both respond with a song of praise. Listen to Mary's response. It's right there, starting in chapter 1, verse 46. And listen to these words, and then we'll look at Zechariah's response. Mary responds this way. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And look at Zechariah's response in verse 67 of chapter 1. And John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He begins the way Mary ends. God has remembered us. He visits his people. He redeems his people, for he has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. He spoke. By the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Can I just give you... Three ways that are revealed here in which the divinity of Jesus really affects us on a practical basis. The first one is this, that because Jesus is God, it means that God is at the center of everything. It means that God is at the center of everything. Luke does something that's not so subtle uh, as you read through Luke 1 and 2. And it's that he continues to turn our attention back to the Lord. You see, what you have, particularly in Luke 1, is some of the most fascinating passages in all of Scripture. 
This is fun stuff. This is why we love coming to Christmas, because Luke 2 and Luke 1 are just, these are fun passages to preach. There's so many interesting things and exciting moments, but just when we start getting caught up in the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and just when we start getting caught up in the miraculous birth, and just when we start getting caught up in the angels singing in the heavens, and the kings going to Bethlehem, and all of these things, just when we start getting caught up in these moments, Luke continues to bring us back to the Lord. That more than any other writer, he mentions the Lord and he mentions God because in the midst of all the fascinating stuff, he doesn't want Theophilus, who he's writing to, or us to think that this is really about anything other than God who is at the center of all things. He wants to continue to bring our focus back on the Lord Jesus Christ to make us know that he is the center of everything. And so Mary's first response is to worship the Lord. I mean... Her first response is not to go tell everyone what's happening in her life. Her first response is not to go tell everyone what's happening and how blessed she is. Her first response is an awareness of the significance of what God is doing to bless the Lord. Zechariah's first response after they had waited and waited and prayed for a child, the first moments in which he can speak, he begins to praise the Lord and bless the Lord God of Israel for visiting and redeeming his people. Because what happens is, is they've, they've realized who this child is. And once they realize who this child is, they're captured by him. They understand his significance. And when we start to realize how significant Jesus is, then we start to understand that Jesus matters more than anything. That he is not just the center of all of the universe. He is to be the center of our lives. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how Luke wants us to be stable in our faith. And we talked about the winds that are constantly blowing against us, the winds of sin and the winds of culture. Can I tell you one of the most significant and subtle winds that are blowing against us? It's that subtle wind of self-centeredness. Do you feel it? Where we go to bed every night and we're just consumed with our own thoughts and our own problems and we wake up in the morning and the first thing we think about is our own issues and our own problems and we walk into a place like this and we start to think, well, no one understands me and no one knows what's going on in my life and no one's, and we just, we just this constantly desire to be centered around ourselves. And I tell people sometimes it's important for you to be reminded that I'm a normal human being with a wife and five kids and a job that's busy. And all of these things have a tendency to consume us and make us think that everything is about us. But we come to Luke chapter 1 and we realize who Jesus is. And we realize that there is something that matters more than everything going on in our lives. What matters more is Jesus Christ himself. Luke wants us to turn our attention away for a moment and stop thinking about the little circumstances and realize that everything in this universe centers on Jesus Christ. He changes everything. And he is to be the center, the center of everything in your life. Every relationship centered on Jesus. Every decision consulting with Jesus. The church of Jesus Christ centering in your life. Because if Jesus is God, it means that he is at the center of everything. The second way it applies to us is this. It also means that, that God is pursuing you. Last week we said that this book, the Bible, is a love story about a brave prince who has 
come to rescue the ones he loves. And it's so important for us to remember, listen carefully, this is not a book of how we get to God. It's a book of how God gets to us. When Adam and Eve sinned, their first response was to hide in shame. It's all of our first responses to sin. We hide in shame. And the Bible says in Ephesians 2 that we were born spiritually dead, disobedient, and doomed. It says in Romans chapter 3 that no one seeks God. So we cannot think that this is a book telling us how to seek God. This is a book that tells us that God has always been seeking us when we would never seek him. That when we run and hide, God comes after us. And if this reminds us of anything, it reminds us in the coming of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, that God is coming after you. It says in verse 48, Mary says, he has looked down upon us. In verse 68, it says, blessed be the Lord who has visited his people. That this is a reminder that God is aggressively pursuing you. That he loves you and he longs for you and he values you to the extent that God himself would come in the flesh to come after you so that he might rescue you. Mary says, I'm rejoicing in God my Savior. Zechariah says this, blessed be the Lord. He has visited us and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation in the house of the servant David that we should be saved from our enemies and the hand of all who hate us. You say, well, I don't have a bunch of people that hates me, hate me. Well, I can tell you one thing. You have one being that hates you and wants nothing more than to take you to hell and to rob you of all of your joy and all of your peace and anything that God is doing in your life. And so God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to crush the head of the serpent so you could be free from all of the consequences, all of the issues for all of eternity, from everything that has been brought at you from the enemy. Why? Because God is coming after you to save you. And do you know that only God could do this? That in order for us to go to heaven, we have to have perfect righteousness. (laughs) Perfect righteousness. No sin. And so someone had to come and live a perfect life in order that they might die so that that perfect life could be credited to our account and our sins might be paid for. And Jesus, coming as the second Adam, the perfect Adam, is the only one that could live a perfect life to save us. If Jesus was not God, we cannot be saved because only God can be perfect. And every bit of that is saying to you, there is a God who loves you and values you and is coming after you in Jesus Christ. It means that God is at the center of everything. It means God is pursuing you. Finally, it means that God is inviting you means that God is inviting you. We talked last week about the fact that God never forgets his people, and Mary said it, that he has remembered us, and it says that God has visited us, and he has come, and over and over, Zechariah points us back to the fact that God has remembered his promise. He's remembered his covenant in verse 72. Look at that. He says he has remembered his covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. You, you know, that's pointing us back to Genesis chapter 2, when God comes to Abraham and says, listen, I am going to continue my work, and here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to gather a people. And through this people, I am going to pour out my blessing, I'm going to give my revelation, and I'm going to use this people to make myself known. And what God is still doing this morning, listen, what he's still doing this morning is the same thing he's always been doing. He's gathering a people. 
Because God has always wanted a people. And you know what God is showing us from this? The God coming in the flesh, Jesus Christ, has come not only to save us, but he's come together for himself a people. He is inviting you to become a part of the story that God is writing. He is inviting you to be a role, a player in that great story, that he might save you from your sins by trusting in his death on the cross, bringing you to be a part of his people so that that people together might be used to advance the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's inviting you to trust and follow him. He's inviting you to center your life around him. He's inviting you to find your life in him. And he's inviting you to be a part of the story that God is writing. I love the way Zechariah ends. Listen to this. He says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. This has always been God's intention, because the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. We're so self-centered that every time we read a text about God saving people, we just think about the way in which God saved us. Praise God. That's wonderful. And God has to save us individually. But what God is doing is he's saving us individually, gathering us in a people, and sending that people out to proclaim the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what he's doing. And he's inviting you, every one of you, to find real life, to find significance, to find meaning in the plan and the purposes of God. He is inviting you to trust him. He is inviting you to follow him. He is inviting you to come and to understand that he is everything in life and nothing else matters apart from him. He's inviting you to make him the center of your life, to take everything you have, every dream, every hope, every family member, everything you own, and surrender it to the Lordship of Jesus and say, Lord, I just want you in the center of every one of these things. Not me, you in the center. Why? Because if Jesus is God, he absolutely means everything. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.